We are in week two of a series that we started last week called Hidden Christmas. And this is, uh, is not a title that's original to me. I need to give credit where credit is due. There's a pastor in New York City by the name of Timothy Keller uh, who has written a new book called Hidden Christmas. So I took the title from that. And he makes some really, really good observations in this book, namely the idea that some of the, the, the Christmas story really has some hard edges to it. And when you read the story of how Jesus came into this world in, uh, in Matthew and in Luke in the New Testament, you see it has a lot of hard edges to it. It's not just all rose-colored Christmas cards and reds and greens and golds and a little pretty picture of Mary and Joseph and Jesus with a little halo around his head, you know, sleeping with the animals around and the wise men. That's not really how it happened. Uh, There's some really rough edges to it. And sometimes the truth of Christmas can get lost underneath all of the glitz and all of the glamour. And this is the idea uh, that we want to capture today. And so we're talking today about the idea of the mothers and the fathers of Jesus. And that title probably has you raising your eyebrows a little bit. Uh, But we want to look at that concept uh, and see if we can learn something from the idea of the mothers and fathers of Jesus. I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 1. Uh, in the Bible's New Testament, I think we're going to have it on the screen and talking about the resume, if you will, of Jesus. Just listen closely. This is a part of the Christmas story that we always skip over. I'm just going to read a few verses of the genealogy here. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And some of you who know some of those Old Testament stories, your wheels are turning. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Are you still awake? Yes, okay. Nashon, the father of Salmon, that's not the fish, that's a person. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz, uh, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You're still with me so far? Okay, now we'll skip over to verses 18 to 25. This is the part we like a little more. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Awkward. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Here the prophet is Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary home to be his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. A question for you just at the outset of this, uh, because you're going to look at genealogies in a new way today. I want you to understand that a genealogy was like a resume. It was like the credentials of the person who was being written about. So a question for you, and most of you, many of you in this room, have gone for a job interview. How many of you, you have had that experience of being interviewed for a job? Where you have to sit in front of somebody and sort of sell yourself to see if you get hired. There's more of you than that. Okay, there's quite a few of you have had the experience. I've had the experience. It's a very nerve-wracking thing. Yes, when you go for a job interview, you know you dress, you try and dress appropriately. You try to, you know, look nice and look good. And you present yourself to your potential uh, employer of interest. And you usually come in with a resume or a curriculum vitae, if you want to be, uh, you know, Latin or whatever language that is. And you, you have a resume of all of your past experiences and your work experience and all of these things. Uh, how many of you, when you go for this job interview and you have your resume, you tend to put the good things on the list, Yes. I mean, you put the good experiences, the, the jobs that you did well at and that you stayed at a long time and so forth to try and put your best foot forward. But you, you, how many of you, you would actually put the bad experiences, the jobs that you got fired from or the places you worked for for, you know, three weeks? You, you probably wouldn't do that, would you? Well, I want you to look first and foremost at this genealogy as if it were a resume. Because this is really what the author is trying to do. He's trying to convince an audience, primarily an audience of Jews, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, and the son of the regal King David. This is what he's trying to convince his readers in this resume, in this genealogy. And I want you to approach it as if it's false. As if it is not true, as if it's a myth, as if it's a fable, because much of the world thinks that when they read of this, this Christmas story, they say, well, half of this is nonsense. And Well, I want you to approach it from that sense. I know that's awkward for some of you, but I want you to look at it that way, to, at least temporarily, because I hope to persuade you to see that nothing could be further from the truth. The way that this thing is written, and when you talk about the mothers and fathers of Jesus, you will be convinced that whoever wrote this down was telling the truth, starting first with this idea of the mothers of Jesus. And there are five of them that are listed there in the genealogy. I didn't put the fifth one on the screen because we know her well, and her name is Mary. But some of them we don't know so well. We have Tamar. We have Rahab or Rahab, we have Ruth, and we have uh, Bathsheba. And this idea of mothers of Jesus, well, the great-grandmothers of Jesus, if you will, on the human side. 
And I want you to see first and foremost that in a genealogy in that culture at that time, to actually have the gall to put women down there in that genealogy was a bit strange. Why he does that, you'll hope, I hope to show you in a few moments, but that's the first odd thing about this genealogy is that he dares to name women. In that culture, at that time, women were not regarded as very high class. Uh, many of them couldn't even read. They were this, People thought that they couldn't understand even the things of God. They were not looked at favorably in that culture. And yet Matthew puts these women, five of them, in this resume of the Messiah. And if you are a... a a Jew at that time, and you are reading this resume, this genealogy, you know who these people are. And let me refresh your memory if you don't know who they are. Let's look at them one by one, these mothers of Jesus that are named. The first one's name is Tamar. And you see this in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3. And Matthew actually goes through the names of the people in this story. He says, Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah. These are twin boys who you'll discover in a minute. Whose mother was Tamar. Now you can read this story at home in Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to give you the broad strokes today. Remember, you're talking about the genealogy of of the Messiah here. Tamar was a woman who was not a Hebrew. She was a Canaanite and she comes into the pages of the Bible because Judah, a Hebrew man who we meet in the book of Genesis, a very prominent figure in the book of Genesis, Judah decides to take a wife from the Canaanite people. And he does this, he's kind of introduced to a woman by a friend of his, but the woman who he marries is a Canaanite, she is not Hebrew. And they worshipped different gods and all of this, very, very different, and Hebrew men were not really supposed to do that, but he did, Judah. And he has three sons uh, with this woman. Are you following so far? Okay, the story is about to get, it's one that when you read it, your eyes get bigger and bigger because it's one of these stories where you say, well, is that really in the Bible? So he has these three sons and he wants to have his three sons married uh, so that, you know, he can preserve his family line. And so they we're told in Genesis 38, the first son does evil in the eyes of God. We don't know what he does, but he does evil and so he dies. Uh, for lack of better words, God takes his life and he dies. And so the second son, uh, by the law of that time, was supposed to have children on behalf of the first son so that the family line could continue. You're following me so far? So uh, the, the, the father, Judah, says, okay, the second son is going to have this woman. And by the way, the woman's name is Tamar. So she's the wife who he picked for his firstborn son. Firstborn son died. So he's going to pass him, uh, her off to the second son. So Tamar he gets together with the second son. And the second son says, I don't want to have children with this woman because they're not going to be mine. And so he, in rather crude fashion, uh, finds a way to not get her pregnant. You can read it on your own. Okay, it's very crude. 
And uh, this is uh, an act of disobedience in the eyes of God. And so this man loses his life as well. You've got one son left. So Judah wants to continue the family line. Two out of the three sons are dead. Tamar wants to have children. You've got one son left available. So Judah gets a little bit nervous. And he says, you know what? We're going to wait until this boy really grows up. And then you're going to marry him and you're going to have children. Because I'm afraid something bad's going to happen to him, if you know what I mean. And so he says to Tamar, look, go, go back to your own home. Live with your own, your own father as a, as a widow and wait. And so she does. Meanwhile, over a long period of time, Judah's wife dies. And so Judah is grieving over the loss of his wife. Tamar's at her own father's house waiting for Judah's last son to grow up so she can get married and have kids. And Judah is grieving. And so he goes and he finds his old friend with whom he was introduced to his wife. And they go off on a journey together. And Tamar hears of this. And she says, you know, I'm not getting any, any younger and I haven't been given to this third son in marriage yet. So I am going to have children one way or the other. And so she knows where her father-in-law Judah has gone and she disguises herself. And again, I don't mean to be crude, but she disguises herself as a prostitute, puts a veil over her face and goes and meets her father-in-law, Judah, on the road, disguising herself as a prostitute. And Judah wants to have a transaction with her. Doesn't know who she is, but wants to have this transaction. And she says, well, uh, what will you give me in exchange for the transaction? I'm telling you the stories in the Bible, okay? You can read it in Genesis 38. And she says, well, what will you give me for the transaction? And he says, well, you can have one of my goats. I think it was a goat. Could have been a sheep, but I think it was a goat. And she said, all right, but until I get the goat, what deposit will you give me before the goat comes? And he says, well, you can have my, my ring. It's a seal to seal documents and the cord that's attached to it, if I remember correctly. And she says, okay, that's, that's the transaction. So they, they, they have the transaction. I'll put it in those words. And lo and behold, Tamar becomes pregnant. Judah, uh, when the transaction is over, he heads back home and he wants to make sure that she is properly paid and, you know, sends his friend and says, here's the animal, where's the, where's the shrine prostitute? And people say, well, there's no prostitute here. Well, what are you talking about? And he says, no, 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 there, we, you know, no, there's no one here. And so they say, well, you know, she can keep the deposit that's fine. We don't want this to go any further. We don't want people to know or we're going to become a laughing stock, Judah and his friend. And so they go home and they keep the matter quiet. Well, then word spreads around the town that Tamar is pregnant by prostitution. Judah, who is her father-in-law, who wants to give her in marriage to his third son, is outraged. He says, bring her out here and execute her. So she comes out and she says, uh, excuse me, Judah, but the man who got me pregnant through prostitution owns these, this, this ring and this cord. You have any idea who that could be? 
And Judah is caught. He's caught in his own immorality. And he, he does, obviously doesn't execute her. And she gives birth to two sons. The first son who's about to come out, his hand comes out of the womb. And the midwife ties a scarlet cord, a scarlet thread around his hand to identify him. Then his hand goes back into the womb. And then another son comes out and comes out first. And this is the son Perez who's named in the genealogy. The one with the scarlet thread on his hand, his name is uh, Zerah. And this is the story of Tamar, the great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus, named in the genealogy a Canaanite woman who disguised herself as a prostitute and gave birth to two boys via her father-in-law. I mean, it makes the story of Mick Jagger having children in his 70s look like Alice in Wonderland, if you know what I'm saying. You're following the news a little bit. Very crude, very graphic, very embarrassing story. And yet this is on the resume of the Lord Jesus. Hmm, that's some mother. Let's look at another one. Her name is Rahab. And she's named in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Well, you can see her in Joshua, the Old Testament, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 6. And here we have a story of a woman who didn't disguise herself as a prostitute. She was one. And she was also a Canaanite. And she is famous in the, in the entire Bible, but in particular in the book of Joshua, because she hides the two Hebrew spies who are spying out the land of Jericho in Canaan before they're going to take the city. They want to see what's over there, and they get into the city, and she hides them from the leadership of Jericho who would have taken their lives. And she conceals them in her home, a prostitute, a Canaanite, and she hides them and and tells the people they went over this way, go and find them over there, and then she waits, and then she lowers these, these spies, these Hebrew spies, uh, down by a scarlet rope. Interesting second use of the of the, the color scarlet there. And she lowers them down by this rope and she protects them and she makes a deal with them. I will protect you if you protect me and my family. And if you, you cannot put a hand on us when you come and take this city. And when they take the city of Jericho, they spare her life and the life of her family. And we're told that she lives on and that she integrated into the people of Israel a Canaanite woman who was a prostitute. And concealed those Hebrew uh, spies in the taking of the city of Jericho. If it doesn't get, uh, if that doesn't get your eyebrows raised, we move to the the other mother, another great grandmother of Jesus, and her name is Ruth. And we see in Matthew chapter one and verse five this time, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Ruth has a whole book written about her. The book of Ruth, it's four chapters long. Wonderful story of a Moabite woman. 
not a Hebrew woman again, and how she dares to move from Moab to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law who's lost her, her husband, who's lost her sons. Uh, Ruth had married one of them. She is now a, a widow. Everybody is, is gone. And Ruth and Naomi head over to Bethlehem, Naomi's home. And Ruth ends up marrying a fellow by the name of Boaz. Boaz was the son of Rahab, who we just learned about, the prostitute. Wow, is this ever eye-opening. It's an amazing story of redemption, the book of Ruth, but again, a Moabite woman named in this genealogy of Jesus. And Boaz, her husband, was the son of Rahab, a prostitute. Boy, that is a curious mention in a resume, and it gets even worse. The last mother we will look at is named in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 6, but she's not even named. Uh, Matthew uses a very clever way of describing the incident and talks about David, the father of Solomon. Yes, that's King Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Well, that right there, he's naming what took place and what happened. And you can read about it in Second Samuel chapter 11 and 12. This is a very famous story about how King David slept with one of the men of his army, slept with his wife. She conceives he has the man uh, systematically murdered to try and conceal it. She conceives, she gives birth to a son, and eventually they lose that son, and then the next son that they will have is none other than King Solomon, but it's, it's not with his wife, it's with another man's wife. It's with Uriah's wife, and her name is Bathsheba. It's amazing that this, this writer, Matthew, dares to mention these characters as the great-great-great-grandmothers of the Messiah. It's like going into an office showing all of the blots on your resume, and one wonders why he did it. Well, we'll learn why in a moment. And we can uh, pause there and look and switch to the fathers of Jesus. And here, while we could go through a litany of these men in the genealogy in Matthew, and even the genealogy in Luke, there is a greater truth for us to appreciate when we talk about this idea of the fathers of Jesus. And that is that the greatest miracle that we have, in the entire Bible, and I would say the greatest miracle in the entire history of the world is that God became man. That God came into this world and became human. I use this idea, the fathers of Jesus, and, and uh, uh, the writer of the book, Hidden Christmas, does the same thing. Because in Jesus, you have one person with two natures. He has a human nature, a human lineage, and he has a divine nature where he calls upon God Almighty as his own Father. 
And this is a remarkable truth. This is the reason that we, that we talk about Christmas in the way that we do. Because we have the miracle of the incarnation that we appreciate at this time. But I fear that we skip over it too quickly. And we don't realize the uniqueness of what we have when we talk about the fathers of Jesus. We're talking about one person, the Lord Jesus, with two natures at the same time. Fully God and fully man. There, this has never happened in the history of the world, even in the history of religion. You can hunt through all of the religions and philosophies and cults around the world. You will not find an incarnation like this one. There are many religions and philosophies that teach incarnations where gods become human or take on human forms. But never, ever in time and space in history that you can record, never, ever, not in a place that's known, not in circumstances that can be verified, not where the God could be seen and heard and touched and smelled and everything. No, you never see that in religion except in Christianity. It is completely unique in all the cults, religions, and philosophies around the world. I have argued with Jehovah's Witnesses, with Muslims, with Mormons, with various kinds of religions, and they will not dare to acknowledge that God has become human in the person of the Lord Jesus. We talk about, about Islam nowadays and we're fascinated by the whole thing and terrified by the whole thing of the jihadists and all of this stuff. Let me tell you the fundamental issue at hand. It is the rejection of Jesus Christ as God. This is rejected in totality by Islam. And this is a fact. They cannot stomach this idea. In Judaism, they could not stomach the idea. They cannot stomach the idea that God could become human. To them, it is a, it is a shocking idea. To the, to the Jehovah's Witness, this is a blasphemy. This is a shocking idea. I can remember having a debate with a Jehovah's Witness and I told him, Jesus Christ has the authority to die and to be resurrected himself. And he said, what are you talking about? You're saying that Jesus raised himself? I said, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. More important, more foundational, even than the resurrection of Jesus, is that you believe in his deity. Because his resurrection is an authentication, an evidence of the fact that he's God. It proves that he's God. But if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is God, that is the foundational problem. And the, the, the incarnation and the celebration of Christmas is all about this. It is the greatest miracle in the Bible. It's what sets Christianity completely apart. Is the idea that Jesus Christ is God. Uh, Matthew chapter 16 uh, Peter is, is having this famous dialogue uh, with Jesus. And he says, uh, Jesus says to the people, well, who do the people say that I am? Uh, and Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus talks about this idea of on this rock, I will build my church. The idea of church is not a building or a place or a structure. It is a people who say that Jesus Christ is the son of God. This is what the church is about. 
This is the confession that we have every, every weekend, regardless of whether we're meeting in a movie theater or anywhere else. It's the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. And in that time, to say that Jesus is the Son of God is to make Him equal, in essence, to God. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus, we're told, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This is the incarnation. This is the idea of Christmas. Uh, John chapter 5, again, Jesus having a, a, a debate with some of the religious Jews there. And He says, My Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. And it says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. This has never been seen in human history. And this is the crux of the matter of Christianity. John chapter 8, Jesus again talking to the religious elite there. Your father Abraham, who was long dead, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And he saw it and he was glad. And they say, what are you talking about? You're saying you saw Abraham, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. I am is the name of the, the, the God in the burning bush who revealed himself to Moses and said, take off your feet, you're standing on holy ground, I am. And the people said, well, pick up stones and kill this man, Jesus, because he's claiming to be God. Uh, John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. They are one essence, uh, one nature, not one person, one nature. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, well, I've shown you many works of the Father. Why are you stoning me? And he said, we're not stoning you for any good work, the, the, the Pharisees say, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And this is the idea of Christmas. We're talking about the greatest miracle that has ever happened, that God became human in real history, real time and space. Philippians chapter 2, who made himself out to be a servant. He took on the very nature of a servant. Though he was God, he humbled himself even to death on a cross. So when we talk about the fathers of Jesus, this is what we mean. One person, two natures. A human lineage, yes, but deity and calling upon God as his own father. What does this all mean to us uh, when we talk about the mothers and fathers of Jesus? Well, hidden truth number one for you. God wants all of us, all of us in his family. Whether the, in, in the mothers of Jesus, we have gender outsiders. These were women. They shouldn't have even been named in that genealogy. There's no way that anyone in his right mind, if they were going to invent a story to try to convince the Jewish people that this man was the Messiah, would they have dared to name those women? 
No way it is strange, it is awkward, it is bizarre, and it is that that shows the truth of the thing. God wants all of us in His family, whether you're a gender outsider, so to speak, whether you're a spiritual or a moral outsider. These were women, they were gender outsiders, they were spiritual outsiders, they were not Hebrew, they were moral outsiders, people who were prostitutes, Moabite people, I mean, all kinds of moral problems. And And yet Jesus comes through the line of these people. He's trying to say that he wants all of us in his family. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you come from, regardless of your ethnicity or your background or your standing in life, God is reaching out to you and he wants you to be part of his family. And that's the vision of our church, to reach the one who is far from God. And the genealogies show it to us, blots and wrinkles and all. God wants all of us to be part of his family. Hidden truth number two. Christmas is about incarnation and not isolation. Incarnation and not isolation. John chapter 1, again, the word became flesh. God became human. This is incarnation taking on a human form. And Philippians chapter 2, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And so the writer says there, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to the interests of only yourself, but also the interests of others. Incarnation versus isolation. In isolation, we build these little boxes around ourselves. And I've seen this even in the church world, where people say, well, you know, the church is about us, and it's about us coming together, it's about us coming to be fed, it's about us worshiping God, but we want nothing to do with them on the outside. Uh, We want to isolate ourselves and build a little house and a little protection for ourselves. But we don't want anything to do with the outside world because they might be contagious. We might catch what they have. This is not the idea of Christmas. In the idea of Christmas, God became one of us. Born in in a, we don't even know exactly where, and placed in a manger. A manger is a place where animals feed out of, where they eat out of. This is how God came into this messy world. And He came and and became one of us. And so if we're followers of Jesus, we should want to interact with the non-Christian world around us. It's very quiet. Uh, That's one of the reasons why we're meeting in a movie theater. Because this is where people come. This is, this is the hub of activity where people come who, you know, from all walks of life. We're front and center. We're visible in front of the public who is coming in. That's one of the reasons why we chose this place. Because we want to reach the one who is far from God. And to do that, you've got to go where people are. You can't just say, well, we'll build our nice little, our nice little box and, you know, people will just magically come to us. No, they won't. You've got to go and reach them. 
Because this is exactly what God did. He became one of us. This is incarnational living. When people who call themselves followers of Jesus actually reach out and try and give the good news of Christ to people who are far from God. And people who are in the church life. I've seen this so many times where we build these little things around ourselves and say, well, this is my area. I'm in charge. This is my ministry. And they get all kinds of authority and power trips and control and all these kinds of things. And anybody else who comes in and tries to join is, no, 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 this is my turf. This is my area. This is not incarnational living. I have seen people who profess the name of Jesus who scream and yell and get all upset about Christmas trees and materialism at Christmas and yet when anybody new comes into their area, they push them out. Well, that's not Christmas. Christmas is come into the family. Come and use your time and talent and treasure and your giftings as part of the family of God. It's the idea of looking at others as more valuable than yourself. Because this is what Jesus did when he came into this world. It's about being incarnational and not about isolation. So quiet. You're so quiet. Hidden truth number three. It will finish with with this one. God relates to us in every way. This is what Christmas shows us. God relates to us in every way. This is the, the incarnation at its finest. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Listen to this closely. Since the children have flesh and blood. He's talking about humanity. Since they have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Wow. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. No longer can we say that God doesn't know what we feel and that God doesn't know what we're going through. Are you struggling to pay the bills? Can I remind you that Jesus was born into a family? They didn't even have enough money for the proper sacrifice when they presented him at the temple. Jesus never even owned a home. Uh, Jesus by no means, he was by no means wealthy. I have heard people try to twist scripture to try and say that Jesus lived in luxury and all of that's nonsense. Jesus knows very well he grew up in the, in the usual poverty of Bethlehem and Capernaum and Nazareth. I mean, everybody was poor. Do you struggle to pay the bills? Well, he knows what that feels like. Do you, do you know what it feels like to be uh, left out? Do you know what it feels like to be uh, not believed in or not trusted by your own family? Well, Jesus knows what this feels like. 
Uh, the Bible says that even his own family didn't believe him. Even his own brothers didn't believe him, at least at one point. Do you know what it feels like to be misunderstood? Well, Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood. Do you know what it's like to be accused? Well, Jesus knows what it's like to be accused. All, every element of life that we experience, we see in the life of Jesus in the gospel story. Do you know what it's like to feel uh, do you know what it feels like to be rejected? Do you know what it feels like to be angry, to be isolated, uh, to, to be overwhelmed with anxiety in your soul? All these things are mentioned about the life of Jesus. Sadness, anger, isolation, even depression, all of these things he experienced in every way. Temptation. The Bible says he was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. What about death? Well, I think he experienced that as well, didn't he? I was reading just in the news a couple of days ago how there was an execution that took place in the United States and they made a big deal about the, the, the criminal who was executed and that it took a little while and that it, there was, it looked like it was, he was very uncomfortable in a great deal of pain for about an hour before he lost his life. And this made big news. Well, can I tell you that when Jesus died on the cross, it, was, it took about six hours and that was quick crucifixions were a lot longer than that in ancient history only took six hours a long long time to be suffering and hanging on a cross to pay the price of the sins of the world there is no death in history as as gruesome and as torturous as a crucifixion and Jesus went through this do you know what it feels like to call upon God and it feels like your prayers just bouncing off the ceiling well, do you, when Jesus was dying on the cross, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You ever felt that way before? Every emotion, every temptation, he has gone through it and faced it. No longer can humanity say that God doesn't relate. You won't find that in any religion. You won't find that in any philosophy except what you see in the pages of the Bible. We're talking about a God who is completely unique in all of history and one that should be worshipped and one that should be served because he loves us and because he came into this world to die for us on the cross. Uh, so no longer can we say, well, he doesn't relate. This God is distant. This God is far away. We can't say that. Christmas is about uh, incarnation and not isolation and God wants everyone to be part of his family I like the worship band if they would come and they're going to just close uh, in one song before we leave today I'm just going to be out in the hallway uh, as they sing so that I can greet you on the way out and remember to fill out a guest card if you'd like and I'd love to follow you up I'll be out in the hallway you can slip it to me there but I want to have a word of prayer with you before we finish today uh, maybe for some of you you say well I call I call on Christ as God already I do that already I'm a Christian already well good who are you telling about that I'll give you a practical way. You know, who are you inviting to our Christmas Eve service on the 24th of December? How, what are you doing to be incarnational in the way that you live? Uh, but maybe there are some of you and you've walked in today and you say, you know, I'm the one who is far from God. I'll tell you who I relate to. I relate to those mothers. You know, I, I relate to the people who are on the outside. 
because I know that I'm on the outside today. Well, I want to pray for you as well as we close. Can we just can we just have a private moment together? God, I thank you for the for the story of Christmas. Harsh as it is, rough edges as we see, but God, you have shown us wonderful truths today. Lord, I pray for people who are already believers in this room, who already profess Jesus as Lord and God. Would you make people incarnational today? Would you enable people and challenge people to get out of their comfort zone and to share Jesus with those who are far from God? Lord, give people courage to share who they are and to not be ashamed, to not be embarrassed, to talk about Jesus with their friends. And Lord, I pray for others who are in this room today. And God, they just know in their heart that they are far from you this Christmas. But but today is a day, Lord, where they want to make a change and want to turn to you as King and as God. And so, Father, I pray for people in this room today who, who, who feel that way. And, and I'm just going to pause for a minute. And maybe you're, you're here and that's you. It could be one or two people. And you just slipped in today and you've been captivated by God today and God is speaking directly to you today and you know it and you want to surrender your life to Jesus today you don't have to know much but if you know that Jesus has come to die in your place on that cross and that he wants your life and wants you to surrender to him you can become a follower of Jesus today if that's you today I just want to pray for you privately while you're in your seat we can talk after if you like but I just want to have a moment, personal moment.